This podcast is presented by Regions Bank. You're chasing your goals, and it's up to you how you want to get there. Let Regions Bank coach you with financial tips that fit your everyday grind. Visit regions.com slash next hyphen step to learn more. Regions, member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Today's episode of the podcast is, frankly, a little self-indulgent. Recently, NBC Sports Network re-aired the 1984 Orange Bowl, when Miami upset Nebraska by a point and a thriller. It's a game that really launched my love for college football, so I decided to do a podcast on it today. I have three guests. Steve Martz is a former Hurricanes beat writer for the Miami Herald. He'll give us a little bit of the Hurricanes side of the story. Lee Barthnecht is a former Cornhuskers beat writer. He'll give us a little of the Nebraska side of the story. Then Ivan Mizell from ESPN joins me to talk about why it was such an important game in college football history. Thanks for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find us on Westwood One Podcast, Apple Podcasts, just about anywhere you like to get your podcast. You can find us. Please subscribe. And if so inclined, please give us a good review. It helps college football fans find us, and it helps us find more college football fans. And away we go. Joining me first on the podcast is... Jim Martz. Jim Martz was a former Miami uh, Herald sports writer. He covered the Miami Hurricanes sort of at the at the birth of their what became a dynasty. Uh, he was the beat writer for the four years previous to them winning their first national championship and was the backup beat writer covering University of Florida the year of that championship game. And he was at the 1984 Orange Bowl uh, right in the sidebar. Jim, thank you so much for joining me today and providing a little insight on what is my favorite college football game ever. (laughs) Ralph, this is amazing to be talking about this game after all these years. It's been a while since I have, but I love talking about that game. There's great memories. There was a great moment in University of Miami football history and sports history in South Florida, and really in all of college football, as you know yourself. So before we get to that game, I want to do just a little bit of setup to where Miami was. Again, you had covered the team in the four years previous, so Schnellenberger got there. That game was a coming out of sorts for Miami to a certain degree. They had a couple of other moments with Jim Kelly and things like that, but could you tell in the four years previous that something special was happening down there, that they were leading up to something bigger? Because I don't know if the rest of the country was taking them quite so seriously, but they were definitely getting some good results before this game and that season. You are absolutely correct. Uh, When Howard came aboard there in 79, they showed a little glimpse of it when he used Jim Kelly for the first time as a starter late in the season, up at Penn State. Penn State's favored to win by 40, and Miami won the game like 28-10. to 10. And I can remember my office at the Herald calling up there at the halftime because there were no cell phones in those days. 
They're saying, Jim, what the heck is going on up there? <laughs> We're listening on the radio, and it doesn't make sense. They also said, if Miami holds on, go ahead and write as many stories as you want to. <laughs> so I did. I wrote four stories. And they sort of took off from there a little bit. Kelly got hurt his senior year in um, 82, so they might have had a really good season then. They finished up 7-4. and four. What's interesting is you look back at the building of the program in 1982, consider who their quarterbacks were. Jim Kelly, Mark Richt, Vinny Testaverde, and Bernie Kosar. And they redshirted Kosar. Testaverde played a little. Kelly got hurt like third game of the year. And then Mark Rick came in and played much of that season. And then they go into the 83 season. And I have the old media guide. I still have it with me. And on the preseason media guide, the quarterback listed was Kyle Vanderwin. He was the extra quarterback back there in 82, but didn't play much. He was a good quarterback. But it really came down to Kozar and Testaverde on who was going to be the starter in 83. And Howard always said he picked Kozar by a whisker, that it was really that close. And Kozar turned out to be the smarter quarterback um, and then really understood that offense that Miami was running because they were throwing the ball a lot. And not many schools were throwing the ball in those days, including Nebraska. I think that probably helped them against Nebraska, which hadn't faced a team that could throw the ball like Miami did. So that year, 83, now again, Miami had a terrific year. If I remember, they were 10-1. Uh, um, and one. They, they came into that game with one loss, or was it one tie? Now, of, of course, I remember. One loss. They got clobbered in the opener at Florida. At Florida, 28-3. Right. Mm-hmm. Kozar's first start, Miami had seven turnovers, <laughs> including four interceptions of Kozar. But Snowberger came out of that game saying, we found a quarterback. He was pleased with the way Kozar was reading things. And so the rest of the year, they go on a nice run. But also, as you look back on it, at the very end, all the dominoes had to fall in place for them to have a chance to win the national championship. Their last two games of the regular season went down to the final play. It was a home game against East Carolina, and they're losing 12-7 to with less than five minutes to go. And Kozar threw a bomb to Eddie Brown that set up the winning touchdown. And then they go to Tallahassee the next week and face Bobby Bowden. And they had to win on a field goal on the final play of the game to make them eligible for the Orange Bowl in, in the big game against Nebraska. And as you know, Nebraska was favored and was considered maybe one of the all-time great teams. Um, Bob Devaney, Joe Paterno, Eric Parsegan all said that was the greatest team in college football history. Mm-hmm. But so then they hadn't. Yeah, yeah, so then, so going into that game, what was the feeling? What did you think was going to happen in that game? Because you, you're seeing how great this, how, how Miami is coming together as a real powerhouse. 
We didn't get a chance to see these other teams on TV quite as much, but Nebraska was the program back then, and so the, you, you know, I'm sure you had a good sense of what they were. Yeah. So let's start with, what did you think? Did you think that this Miami team was good enough to hang with that Nebraska team? Because we weren't even talking about beating them. It was more of, can Miami stay with them? I thought they could stay with them because of the type of offense they ran, because they were underdogs. They were playing at home. Uh, you know, they had nothing to lose, everything to gain. And they were running an offense that Nebraska hadn't seen and was probably going to have trouble with. Mm-hmm. And they did at the beginning. Miami jumped to a 17 to nothing lead, moving the ball all over the place. And then Nebraska, you know, made the game go down to the wire. But I did have a feeling that, yes, they had a chance because they were a very well-coached team. And then when you've got a a smart quarterback like Bernie Kosar running the the game, uh, yes, you've got a chance in that game. So now Miami is playing in their home stadium, and that was an amazing crowd too, which I'm sure to Nebraska, maybe that might have caught Nebraska off guard to a certain degree as well. But I would say, like, you know, again, Miami became the U a few years later with under Jimmy Johnson. Did that team capture the city of Miami, you know, the Dolphins were still a very big deal back then. That was, in fact, that 83, I was, think, was Marino's first year, his rookie year. So the Dolphins dominated that town. I'm wondering yeah. what the Canes were in Miami at that point in that season. Had they really captured the, the imagination of the town? They were starting to, but as you look back on it, there were games at midseason drawing 35,000 people. Mm-hmm. Uh, even playing a ranked team like uh, West Virginia, um, so they were catching on, but no, they weren't on fire like they were going to be a couple of years later. Uh, the, the Dolphins just totally dominated everything down here in those days, and rightfully so. And there weren't any other pro teams around. There were no Miami Heat. There were no Florida Panthers or anything like that. There was a soccer team, but soccer wasn't as big then as it is now. So uh, Miami... The Hurricanes, in a sense, were even creeping up in their own town. Uh, but I really believe that Howard Stellenberger willed that team to victory. And again, all the dominoes had to fall. Uh, even on that day, uh, if I can throw this in, you know, Miami went into that game ranked fifth in the nation. So to, to move up to number one, everybody else had to lose. Mm-hmm. And Texas did. They were number two. They lost to Georgia in the Cotton Bowl. Auburn was three, and they lost to Michigan, nine to seven in the Sugar Bowl. And Illinois was number four. They're in the Rose Bowl, and they got clobbered by USC, forty-five to nine. So that's how Miami moved up. But even Miami fans and we in the media weren't sure after Miami had won the game that they would still vault all the way up to number one in all the polls. There were still some doubt until those polls finally came out. So that, right, that's been back in the day where there was no playoff, and the polls and the AP poll in particular named the national champion. So it's, yes. and again, having just watched it now, refresh my memory. Uh, you know, so as a, th- a 13-year-old me was really gung-ho to watch Nebraska just run up a huge score because that's what Nebraska had done all year, and I didn't get a chance to see Nebraska that much. So Miami jumps out to a 17 nothing lead. It's a long time ago, Jim. 
but do you remember sort of your feeling in the press box, the feeling of sort of the crowd, the press box of like, whoa, what is going on here? Like, what was that like? And did you think it would last? Or was there was there a sense of like, well, you know, eventually Nebraska is going to get this thing figured out? Yes, we did think Nebraska. They're too good. Miami had a really good defense, but everybody had the feeling Nebraska is going to come back. And they did. They were still down 31-17, I think, going into the fourth quarter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Then they get two touchdowns, and the last one, you know, is in the, like the last minute where they get the uh, touchdown to cut the lead to 31-30. to And they decide, Tom Osborne, if he kicks an extra point, they're going to be national champions. But he goes for the two, and they don't make it. I'll be glad to describe the play a little bit. I remember it very well, even though at the moment I was standing on the sideline. Well, yeah, what, let me let me take it to that, Jim. What was your view yeah. of the play? I remember the play. The play is a very famous play, but what was your view of the play? I'm on the sideline at that time because the media is allowed to go down to the sideline the last five minutes of the game. So I'm standing on the Miami sideline, and – I just happened to be standing next to Jim Kelly and Joe Namath. Namath had played under Snellenberger when Snellenberger was at Alabama and was the offensive coordinator under Bear Bryant. Uh, So they're there, and we're chatting a little bit. And as the play ran, it ran to the right side of the field, which was the hurricane side of the field. So I didn't get a good view of the play, and there weren't replay screens in those days at the Orange Bowl or anywhere else. So you had to go by the crowd reaction and the crowd going nuts. So it wasn't until actually until later that I could actually see the play or talk to players in the locker room about what happened on that two-point conversion pass play. So be and of course it gets knocked down. Uh, Miami wins the national championship. Let me let me just touch base a little bit because I don't want to get some of the. We've talked about sort of the broader issue, but I'd be interested to know who were some of the interesting personalities on that team. You mentioned Kozar, but also some of the players that Miami wasn't known as a football hub, but it was becoming a football hub. But who were the players that sort of were the launching? had players to the dynasty, that first team. Who were the interesting characters on that team? Interesting characters. Well, they called the whole offensive line, uh, was they called themselves the Misfits, mm-hmm. and also a melting pot because you had a Cuban-American, a Canadian, an African-American, an Italian-American, and an Irish-American <laughs> in descent. <laughs> the... Uh, Receivers were, they had really good wide receivers. Uh, Eddie Brown, who played quite a bit in the NFL. Yeah, first round draft pick. Yep. Right. Stanley Shakespeare was the flanker. Reggie Sutton backed him up. Uh, the tight end um, that Dennison. year. Yeah, Glenn was, Dennison, who caught the two touchdown passes. Yep. Yes, he was an excellent, excellent tight end. On the defense, no superstars, but just a really good swarming defense. Tom Olivadotti did a great job as a defensive coordinator. Jay Brophy, a linebacker, probably would have been the leader in there. Rodney Bellinger, a cornerback. 
Lucius Delago, Jacinto Fernandez, Joe Colbrand. People are going to say, who the heck are these people? <laughs> Well, that's uh, right, because the, the interesting thing, though, Jim, is, you know, right from watching that game, you know, so many of the superstar Miami players that we came to know up through the dynasty, a lot of those guys weren't there yet. The Jerome Browns, like, I think Jerome Brown was a freshman on that team, and Alonzo Highsmith was a, played pretty well on that game, scored a touchdown, and was a freshman on that team. And I remember yeah. watching the replay a couple of days ago and thinking, oh, this is a glimpse into the future. Like, this team was really good, but you could see in Highsmith and Jerome Brown, like, this is the wave that's coming, right? This this is why this yes. is going to be good for a while. Yes, they'd had some great recruiting classes in there. Oh, one name I did forget, I want to remember this, the rover, Ken Calhoun, he's the guy that knocked down the two-point conversion pass uh, that Kendall Gill threw over there into the right corner. He read the play perfectly, stepped in front, got three fingers on the ball, and knocked it away. But you're right. That team really set the table for all the great things that happened later under Jimmy Johnson. Yeah. Uh, you know, oddly, at the end of that year, Howard Stellenberger left. He went for the riches, supposedly, of the USFL, which fell apart. He never coached a game in the USFL. Was, uh, and then eventually was, ended up at Louisville. Right. Was there a sense that that was a one-off, or did you down in Miami understand that, you know, because Jimmy Johnson comes in and, and, you know, he was this guy from Texas, but was there a sense that uh, – did the folks in Miami think that that was the beginning of something or that that was a moment in time? No, that that was the beginning of something. There was actually some feeling that – Who's Jimmy Johnson? He'd been at Oklahoma State. They really didn't know who he was. They didn't realize how good a coach and how good a recruiter he was. They were hoping that maybe somebody on the staff or a former Hurricane would have been uh, put into that position. So he had to win fans over. He had a tough transition year there in 84. Kozar stayed one more year, got his degree in three years with a double major. And then it was the Testaverde era. And that's when everything took off in 85, 86, and 87 with the next national title. And 86, by the way, might have been the most talented team they ever had, and they got to the final game and lost in the Fiesta Bowl to Penn State for the championship. So so last question, on, and last question, I'll get you out of here, but last question going back to that game and that night. So you go into what was the feeling like in the Miami locker room, Miami postgame? that night covering it, you know, you get told, okay, you know, go find a story. You're the sidebar writer. Go find a story. <laughs> Would you remember the story that you wrote? Do you remember what the Miami locker room and, and the reaction for the winners was, was that night? Well, it was delirium, but I stayed on the sideline for quite a while and talked to some players. I have a picture on my mantle at home of me talking to Alonzo Highsmith who just coming off the field carrying uh, his helmet and uh, part of the jersey and everything. And uh, I think it probably led with him and his comments about the whole game. And, yes, they the players really did feel that they were going to win that game. He had, uh, Snellenberger had convinced them that they could win. Uh, one thing that I do remember during the, the uh, week leading up to that, uh, Howard was throwing all sorts of things at at the team that people were saying, and then he would say, 
at the end of the sentence, horse bleep. I won't say what he said, <laughs> but he said that in about 10 or 15 different sentences. And then the players are going around all week saying horse bleep, horse bleep. And it just sort of carried over. They, they had a very positive attitude going into the game. Jim Martz is a former Miami Herald sports writer. He covered the Miami Hurricanes sort of at the birth of the U, uh, at the point when they were starting to become the great Miami dynasty. He covered maybe one of the greatest football games in the history, well, not maybe, one of the greatest football games in the, history of, in the history of college football, the 1984 Orange Bowl, won by Miami 31-30. Jim, thank you so much for joining me today and for bringing back some of those great memories and sharing your insight. Thank you, Ralph, for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be on your program, and it's great to reminisce about that great game. Joining us now to give a little bit of the Nebraska perspective on the 1984 Orange Bowl is Lee Barfneck, the former Omaha World Herald beat writer for Nebraska. You're on that beat quite a long time, weren't you, Lee? I was. Uh, 40 years at the paper and uh, probably 35 or 6 uh, associated with Nebraska Athletics. So, so you some time with them. Yeah, so you saw a lot of great teams, a lot of wins, a lot of championships. That season, in many ways before the Miami game, looked like it was going to be the greatest of all. I mean, that that team was being talked about as maybe the great one of the great teams of all time. Before we get into that game, can you give me a little feel of what what the expectations were going into that season for Nebraska? Well, coming off the in 1982, Nebraska had only lost one game, and that was at Penn State, and it was kind of a controversial loss. There were a couple of plays uh, toward the end of the game. There's an out of bounds or a pass that was called uh, complete that was replay it. Uh, if there had been replay at the time, probably would have been overturned, but that's the way things go. Uh, and uh, Nebraska finished that year 12-1 and and had a lot of players coming back. Had Mike Rozier, Irving Fryer, Turner Gill, uh, just a really explosive offense. And uh, as they came into 83, they thought they were going to be really good. The only kind of nick in the armor was that uh, the defense had lost some key people. And as it turned out, that was the thing that uh, at the very, very end that cost Nebraska. The, the offense was so dominant through the year that it didn't make much difference. But the defense was ranked, if I recall, it was either 63rd or 65th in the country, which was uh, clearly the the uh, outlier in uh, Charlie McBride's term as a defensive coordinator at Nebraska. So, uh, But again, the, the offensive numbers were just so silly that people didn't pay much attention to the defense. Yeah, listen. As a as a thirteen year old in Queens, New York, um, you know, not all the games were on TV at that time, but a handful were, or not even a handful, a couple were. But what what you most remember for me was sort of seeing these massive scores coming in. Yeah, you know, an eighty point game against Minnesota, and then sixties and seventies. And so as you're going along that season, again, you know, maybe it was hard to spot that there was some defensive uh, de- deficiencies. Uh, there was a couple of games where they were challenged, though, right? The Oklahoma State game, they were challenged in the Oklahoma game, which you expected. Yeah. Jimmy Johnson was at Oklahoma State at the time. They had a really good team, a lot of really tough kids, very athletic team. Uh, that game was 14-10. to 10. It was a, on a kind of a cloudy, cool day. It was kind of a, you know, one of those games that uh, was a lot of tension. 
Uh, Nebraska pulled that out. Uh, Turner Gill hit Irving Fryer with a, with a big touchdown pass that kind of broke it open a little bit. But uh, yeah, they hit, they had a couple challenges, but they were just just bizarre. I mean, they uh, you know they beat Syracuse sixty three to seven. They went to Minnesota in eighty four to thirteen. Sid Hartman, you know the hundred year old columnist at the Minneapolis Star Tribune was yeah, stopping still going. the press box yelling at Osborne for running up the score. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was kind of funny. Uh, you know, the, against Colorado, it was 14-12 to 12 at halftime, and Nebraska scored 48 points in the third quarter. Uh, you know, just, just ridiculous numbers. Uh, offensively, it just appeared that nobody could stop them. So the Oklahoma game was close, but Nebraska wins, right. and that sends them to the Orange Bowl. And I, Miami, who's Miami, right? I, mean, I think even right. even me in Queens was sort of like, who's Miami? <laughs> um, so what was the general feeling, you know, in Nebraska among Nebraska fans, and maybe even from the team going into that game? Did anybody have an idea of what they were getting into? Maybe Tom Osborne. Yeah, I mean, I think the coaching staff from watching the film was pretty aware that Miami was a very talented team. You know, Bernie Kosar, quarterback, uh, anytime you have a premier quarterback, you've got a chance in a football game. But I think the coaches, the public didn't understand it back in Nebraska. Uh, the coaches did. I mean, they understood that uh, Howard Schnellenberger had a lot of, some kids off the kind of scratch and dent pile, you know, the tough kids that were under-recruited. Uh, maybe hadn't been recruited at all that he turned whipped into a pretty tough group of guys. Uh, a lot of guys with chips on their shoulders he had some tough, a lot of tough kids from Jersey and New York. Uh, had a lot of kids from Florida that would have been overlooked by Florida state and Florida. So, um, you know, they had, you know, kind of the formula for a really great team in my opinion in college football is have about three or four studs on each side of the ball and the rest of them are kind of blue collar you know, role-playing guys really fit in. That's that's how Nebraska won their national championships. That's how I saw Miami's team built that year. When Miami gets out to a 17 nothing lead in that game. Now, again, I'm sure you were talking with coaches and coaching staff. And back in those days, I'm sure you, you might have even had – being able to have coffee with Osborne, you know, on, and, and, right. and breakfast with him and, and assistant coaches because the things were a little looser in those days. So I'm sure you were hearing from the coaches, listen, this team is good, this Miami team is good. But even then, it's 17 nothing. Uh, Miami has just dominated early on. What are you thinking in the press box of like, wow, what is going on here? I remember that, you know, the old Orange Bowl press box is basically separated into three sections. And basically, the wing we were in was the Nebraska media, a lot of the big eight media that had, you know, they spec when newspapers had enough money to send, uh, mm-hmm. you know, regional reporters. I remember Rick Riley was the Denver Post at the time, was sitting right behind me. I mean, we we're all just at the first quarter break, and we we're all just kind of standing there looking at each other like, what the hell is going on here? And, uh, and even the only way Nebraska kind of got the momentum stopped was in the second quarter to run the fumble ruski with Outland Trophy winner Dean Steinkuhler, you know, carrying the ball for a touchdown. It was kind of the only way that Nebraska could finally kick the door open. So it became pretty apparent pretty fast that uh, Miami was clearly a uh, noble contender on the field and that, that Nebraska was going to have a chance for it. 
Okay, so I have to talk to you about that play because that play is is as iconic as the game uh, and the fumble ruski. And there's a few obviously iconic plays from that game, um, but the fumble again and again because it was in a losing effort. I'm, it to a certain degree gets lost to history because if my right. if, if if Nebraska wins that game and that is what sort of sparks the comeback. It, it maybe even becomes a, a bigger and more iconic play, but in in all the mess of the aftermath, what was the deal with that play? Did you have a chance to talk to people at that, about that play, and were they? Was it something that Nebraska had in its bag and maybe showed at some point during the year? Did people even realize that was legal? Yeah, they had used it before. Uh, they'd used actually used it in uh, 1979 in the game at Oklahoma. They'd probably run it two or three times before, and it's no longer a legal play. It was legal at that time. And, mm-hmm. uh, for for the listeners, uh, it's basically uh, you snap the ball to the quarterback, and the quarterback sits it on the ground and spins out like he's running an option play, and the guard pulls back and comes back countered everybody else and grabs the ball off the ground and <clears throat> continues to run, and it's uh, – it's really a, a dangerous play because it's very easy for somebody to kick the ball and then things are really scrambled, which I think showed you some of the desperation that Nebraska had at the time to try to break the momentum of the game. Uh, it was a very gutsy call by Tom Osborne. Um, you know, uh, one indicator, I think, of, of how Nebraska was worried about going into the game, the coaches themselves, they actually changed jerseys on two of their defensive backs in that game. Okay, uh, switched, I had I had forgotten switched. about that, and then <laughs> they switched to cornerback and a, and a strong safety. They switched their jersey numbers, hoping to confuse Bernie Kosar. If he was reading defenses by jersey numbers, they were hoping would make a mistake. So that's kind of a sign that Nebraska knew that they might have a little bigger challenge than they also now illegal. Yeah, that was something I had completely yeah. forgotten about that game until, again, watching it on the replay just a couple of days ago, uh, staying <laughs> up until way, way past my bedtime uh, to, to to watch that game. And, yeah, that they had basically changed jersey numbers, and it took about a half before Don Cricky yeah. and, and John Brody in the booth. I don't know how quickly you may have noticed as a Nebraska beat writer that that, w- that, had, well, that had been the case. Or had they, had they tipped you off at all that they were going to do that? No, not at all. We had noticed um, one of our guys always brought binoculars and we were watching warm-ups and the, the body types of the two guys who changed jerseys were, were different. One was a, uh, kind of a long, lanky guy and the other one was kind of a squatty body. And we're looking at it's like, boy, you know, somebody's got the wrong jersey number. Who is that? Start looking at comparing them. We kind of, and then the game, when the game got going, when we could see who was actually out on defense, we figured it out. But it was like, and we, but we couldn't understand why in the world they'd done it. So. so was there any point, so Nebraska makes this big surge of a comeback twice, 17 nothing down, ties it, goes down 31-17. Another thing that I had sort of forgotten, there was a key point when they're making their second comeback, the Cornhuskers, they got the ball into uh, uh, Jeff Smith had replaced Mike Rogier, who went out with a hamstring injury. And Smith has this great run that gets him into into the red zone, but fumbles. So that was a chance. To, you know, they they blew a chance to get even closer there. But what, I'm wondering if there was a sense of they'll come back, right? There's no way they'll lose this game because you had seen them be so dominant. Was there any sense that the comeback was inevitable? 
I think everybody thought when it got to be 31-17 going into the fourth quarter, I think there was a little bit of uh, wonder at that point if they, if there's enough time left to come back. Um, and with Rozier out, and this is no knock on Jeff Smith, who was a great running back in his own regard, but people just kind of wondered if, um, you know, with Rozier being hurt, uh, Irving Fryer dropped, a, you know, what would have been a sure long touchdown pass on another drive. Uh, you just kind of wondered if it was the night where things weren't going to happen. But, um, you know, the re- relentless option offense of Nebraska just kept turning along. It's, you wondered if there was going to be enough time left. It turned out there, there was. So they scored the touchdown. Jeff Smith, the, the aforementioned Jeff Smith. When you see it again, I remembered it was a fourth down play. It's a fourth and eight, and they ran an option and scored like a 25-yard yeah. touchdown. And to the short side of the to field. To the short side of the field. Which, okay. Which is Osborne's trick forever. <laughs> so, so this is a very weird thing for me to ask you, Lee. But, you know, again, like, again, I'm 13 years old. I always remember watching those, watching Nebraska and teams that ran the option and just being furious when they ran to the short side of the field yeah. and thinking, why would you, like, it just, like, I mean, my 13, 14, 15 year old self thinking, like, there's hardly any room there. Why are they running to the short side? So you were around Osborne all those years. Why did they run so often to the short side? You know, I asked him that question multiple times in multiple ways. And he always said, well, it's, there's one fewer defender on that side of the field. And we, Sometimes he says we sometimes we pull a, a guard or pull a tackle, and they think there's enough of a of a you know manpower situation there to make it uh, feasible to do that. And I always said, but Tom, the sideline is there, and you can't move that. That's a defender in itself. And he just said, no, we always thought we could just make it work. So. Okay, I'm, I'm glad you answered that. Okay, that's a long-time pet peeve. Now I'm 50 years old. I'm thinking about my pet peeves back when I'm 15. So – then the play, right? In retrospect, I think back, and I don't know if it dawned on me at the time, because at the time I'm rooting for Nebraska. I'm a 13-year-old in Queens rooting for Nebraska. And they had just run the option. They were this amazing option team. They go for right. two. So two two questions. A, were you surprised that they went for two? And B, the play call. Like in retrospect, is that still something that's debated today? Are those two things still debated today? among Nebraska fans and people who were around those teams? Uh, I wasn't surprised they went for two, and I don't I don't really think anybody was. Some of that might be confidence slash arrogance in the power of their offense. Uh, part of it was just the way that uh, that team carried itself. They, were, they weren't cocky, but they really believed in everything that they, that they do. And, and one of the players, I can't remember if it was uh, – Mark Trainowitz, the center, might have been. Uh, I don't know. One of the other linemen has said we didn't we didn't start practicing twice a day in August when it was 100 degrees to come out and play for a tie on January the second. So, I mean, there there literally was no discussion on the sideline. I mean, they already had to play. They talked beforehand. They knew what play they were going to call, what they wanted to run, and it simply was just kind of what Nebraska did that time uh, that year they were so dominant offensively they didn't think they could be stopped and you thought it was the right call at the time in the press box as a as a as the sports writer who gets the second guess uh well it made for a lot of fun writing <laughs> <laughs> i mean it made for the, it made for the best ending to you know one of the best football games i believe that's ever been played in the, in the college game 
uh, just kind of added to the mystique and the aura of the whole, you know, this uh, underdog Miami team, a 10 and a half or 11 point underdog that had started the season with a 28 to three loss and, and kind of snuck in, you know, quietly into the top five in their rankings, possibly winning a national championship. And here's the supposedly greatest offense of all time, trying to, uh, score on what, you know, basically the, one of the last plays of the game to try to preserve his perfect season. So as for the, the play itself, uh, I don't know how you can doubt it. You put, uh, you put a spread formation with Turner Gill, like quarterback and rolling out, you give him the option to run. You've got Irving Fryer out there. You've got Jeff Smith out there as a receiver. I mean, you got, I mean, it's multiple options. It's just a huge nightmare for the defense to try to cover that. So, uh, I mean, I think that was the, a play that can put as much stress on a defense as could possibly be, be placed, and uh, Miami survived it. Okay, so the last thing I want to talk about, the aftermath a little. Well, actually, let's do this. First, the aftermath, the immediate aftermath. You talked about, you know, working so hard and to, to possibly, you know, certainly weren't going to settle for a tie. What was the shock factor like with the team, maybe even within my uh, Nebraska fans? I mean, was there blowback from Nebraska fandom that like, hey, man, like this is, you know, how could we lose this game? I mean, especially Dr. Tom hadn't won a national championship yet, and he had sort of been, you know, had the stigma of not necessarily getting over the hump and losing a lot of games to Barry Switzer, uh, and that stuck with him for a few more years. So what was the aftermath of that game? Um, we'll take it from the Nebraska players, and but also Nebraska, you know, Husker Nation. You know, the response from the fans was, I don't know, I want to use this word surprisingly, but it was almost, I would say it's probably 90 to 95% in agreement with what he did. Uh, they didn't like the result, but I think people respected the decision. Uh, they liked that he had the guts to go for it. Um, I remember Osborne talking, you know, three or four days later about he called the next morning, he called his secretary and he called his wife because he wanted to see what the reaction was from you know, there were a ton of angry phone calls and he said to his surprise and delight that there have been very few of those and far more uh you know praiseworthy calls so um i think people were just kind of on board with it just thought it was really just really cool that he that he went mm-hmm. for it i mean it was uh um it, it just was one of those things where um osborne kind of you know, played that way, and and again, their offense was so good that year. They just kind of thought that they had the best. That was their best chance. So um, it was, you know, a call that's you know we're talking about it almost forty years later. It's something that probably be talked about for a hundred years and for among college football aficionados. And just a interesting end to a wildly interesting night. So then, the last one is the broader aftermath. You know, it was a few more years of Miami, you know, beating the heck out of Oklahoma and Nebraska. Like the the right. the, the, the next bunch of games, Miami was getting better. Nebraska and Oklahoma were still sort of doing the same things. It took a while, it seemed, before Nebraska and Oklahoma, but really Nebraska sort of understood. Like we we're not going to get past this Miami beast. Can you explain a little bit about what that transformation was like and, and why it maybe, maybe why it took so long and what, what ended up happening at the end of it? Well, I think Nebraska was discovering that what they were doing uh, offensively and defensively was very effective in the, in the Big 8 conference and allowed them to 
be co-dominant in that league with Oklahoma. But at the same time, nationally, uh, and even though they played good intersectional opponents and had good success, but I think, you know, the teams that were built on elite speed, um, it just it eventually changed the, the recruiting pattern of Nebraska. Nebraska ended up losing seven bowl games in a row from like 85 through 92. And a lot of it was just because they were out-athlete, uh, especially from the speed standpoint. And it also affected recruiting. You know, Miami had a uh, – this did kind of start with Schnellenberger and Johnson through Dennis Erickson. Uh, you know, they, they basically – they took, uh, uh, you know, linebackers and made them defensive linemen. They took defensive backs and made them linebackers, and they took even smaller, faster guys and made them DBs. I think they were the – front end of the trend of having smaller defense. I remember the, the night of the game, we were calculating that uh, along the front line, Miami's defensive line gave up 36 pounds of man on average to Nebraska's offensive line. Mm-hmm. But they hung right in there. And I think that it just showed, uh, you know, if you wanted to win a national championship, there was kind of a certain amount of speed and a certain amount of quickness you had to be able to, to utilize to do that. And then in the '90s, um, Nebraska sort of find, yeah found that speed and, the, and and turned the tables on Miami. Well, after the 1990 season, uh, which Nebraska ended with the loss to Georgia Tech in the Citrus Bowl, um, Osborne basically broke the program down and and reevaluated every part of it. That's when they switched to the four-three defense and they went from the five-two to the four-three, uh, much more attacking, more aggressive. Uh, they recruited different players. They recruited different parts of the country. Um, they recruited off a lot of the model off the Florida schools of Florida State and Miami that beat them so badly at that bowl, bowl game losing streak. And offensively, they uh, they went away from as much option. They didn't run quite as much option. Uh, so and ran, you know, obviously threw the ball a little bit, not a ton, but a little bit. So. It changed the way Nebraska played football. I mean, it, it sent Miami into the, you know, the elite of college football for a 20 to 25 year period. And it uh, changed the way Nebraska looked at itself. And that's kind of what led to Nebraska's, you know, 60 and three run in, in the mid nineties. It was a highly, highly impactful football. Lee Barfnecht is the former uh, Nebraska, longtime Nebraska beat writer for the Omaha world Herald. Lee, Thanks so much for joining me and sharing these stories. Uh, I hope my listeners are enjoying this as much as I am because I'm just <laughs> giddy to, to talk about this stuff. It is a, is a great uh, a walk down memory lane to remember the, maybe the greatest college football game of all time, the 1984 Orange Bowl between Miami and Nebraska. Lee, thanks again, man. I really appreciate it. Hey, I always thought if I was going to write a book, it should be about this game. Maybe it's time to do it. So thanks for re- refreshing my memory on some things. Uh, I hope I can inspire you. I would definitely read it. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Ralph. This podcast is presented by Regions Bank. You're chasing your goals, and it's up to you how you want to get there. Let Regions Bank coach you with financial tips that fit your everyday grind. Visit regions.com slash next hyphen step to learn more. Regions, member FDIC.
Joining me this week on the podcast is Ivan Mizell from ESPN. Ivan, good to talk to you. It has been a while. I hope you're well. Hope your family's well. Uh, and I hope you're uh, um, keeping warm up in Connecticut <laughs> in May. <laughs> yeah, in May. Uh, we actually discussed bringing firewood in, uh, which is just something utterly wrong with that. But but climate change is still not as important as, as COVID uh, these days. <laughs> uh, and we are fine. You know, I have the luxury of working from home when I'm not traveling, so my life has not changed and it's the dead of the off season. So my life has changed a lot less than others. And, uh, you know, we're just trying to not to, uh, drive our loved ones crazy, (laughs) which is sort of a a tough task, even in normal times. So, (laughs) so I decided uh, to have you on because I was looking, you know, okay. So this is a very self-indulgent podcast I'm doing today. Um, it is uh, about the my favorite football game, which was uh, Nebraska. My favorite college football game, which was Nebraska Miami, the '84 Orange Bowl, and we've gotten a little taste of the you know from both sides with talking with a, you know, beat writers who covered those teams at the time. But I wanted to get sort of a historical picture of what this game was because to me, you know because at 13 I didn't realize it at the time but now that I look back on it and I have some knowledge as someone who covers the sport I realized that this was sort of a in some ways a pivotal moment for college football and nobody has studied the history of college football especially recently more than the brains behind ESPN's college football 150 so I wanted to get some of your perspective on this. Now, you didn't cover this game. You weren't quite on the national beat back then, but you're certainly old enough to remember this game. Oh, and, yeah. And, and then when you went back and sort of researched for ESPN 150, this ended up being, I think, number two on the all-time greatest games list of ESPN. But what did this game sort of mean in the, in the sort of the larger context of college football? What were some of the trends that maybe were spotted in this game? Ooh, wow. Uh, where to start? I think that to me the biggest was it was the it was the debut the national debut for lack of a better phrase of the speed of South Florida and and how that could be deployed on the field with devastating effect and if you look at college football Ralph you know in in the years in which you uh, were maturing uh, uh, the late 80s, early 90s. It was all about the, the teams in Florida, Miami and Florida State, uh, and their ability to keep the best talent at home and and to choose speed over size. And all of that began, the seeds of all of that began with Howard Schnellenberger's 1983 Miami team. Right. For someone who's my age, I grew up with Miami-Florida State being the rivalry, and then at certain points, Steve Spurrier got to Florida, and they started winning national championships. And now we just know Florida is a place where there's a lot of football players and great football. But that really wasn't like, you know, the idea that Miami would be a great football team, or even Florida State and Florida. That wasn't a yes. given before no. this this time. Th- those were those were sort of far flung. It was the the power center was more Midwest, right? Absolutely, and you know, and there are a couple of factors going into that. If you step back before 
the arrival of, of Miami and Florida State. One, of course, was segregation. And so only half of the, the players in the state were recruited by the named schools uh, until the 70s. And then uh, in the 70s, you're dealing with Miami and Florida State, who, who Florida State certainly didn't play until after World War II, and, and Miami had was just a sort of a – you know, I said Miami before Schnellenberg was almost like a Virginia Tech of that era or, a, you know, sort of a Mac level school. You know, they were 1A. Uh, it was not called 1A then, but they were they were 1A. And and uh, but they were a team that Alabama would buy home, you know, would would buy to come in and play, you know, come play us. You know, they were they were a way to fill a schedule. Um, now, you know, integration began to change all that, of course. Uh, and, uh, and even at that, uh, Florida was still seen as a place where the teams should have been better than they were, you know, not, not as much with Florida state and Miami, but especially with Florida, you know, you brought up Spurrier university of Florida never won an sec title until Spurrier got there, which is, you know, even the law of averages, you know, you would think uh, well, at some point mm-hmm. they would have won one. But th- there was always – Bear Bryant once said about that program that if they get the right guy there, they're going to be really dangerous. Uh, you know, and what he was saying in effect was, you know, but right now they're underachieving. And th- the whole state had that sort of stamp of of being a football backwater and – and Schnellenberger was the one that really broke through that restraint. Meanwhile, on the Nebraska side, uh, you know, Osborne and, and that program had been dominant for a while. And the Big 12, I mean, you know, again, from my infancy stages of college football, sort of breaking through in, you know, the, that period, Oklahoma-Nebraska was in many ways the rivalry really throughout the 70s, but often with Nebraska coming out on the short end. Yeah, well, uh, Tom, you know, every coach has a guy who is his nemesis. And for Tom Osborne, that was Barry Switzer. And of course, Barry beat a lot of guys. Daryl Royal couldn't beat Barry either. Uh, but uh, Nebraska was nonetheless a national power because, you know, we just got through talking about how important speed was, but Nebraska, for so long, emphasized strength. They were the first school, as as everybody knows, to have a a, uh, a big weightlifting program and, and proved that you could lift weights and still be an effective football player. You know, there was a feeling that came into football even into the 60s and 70s that you could be too muscle-bound. And that, you know, weightlifting was not good for a football player. They needed to be lean and mean. And, and, and maybe they did in the, in the one platoon 60-minute era. But, uh, you know, Bob Devaney hopped on weights as a effective way to uh, develop stronger players. And, and Osborne and, his, and the strength coach there, Boyd Epley, uh, continued. And, and if you look at the – all-America teams of the 70s and 80s, there was always an, at least one Nebraska offensive lineman on them. Uh, 
So uh, they they were. Uh, it's not that they were plotting either, but you know, Tom got his speed from Texas and California and New Jersey, mm-hmm. and that team, that '83 team, was a great blend of of power and speed. There was also an interesting portion of this game that was a it was a mile marker for strategy to a certain degree. Nebraska was running the ball out of the eye, a lot of option, and killing people. But that was also the flavor of the day. Um, yeah. You had teams that were throwing, but they were considered fringe teams. And Miami was uh, essentially a quote-unquote pro-style team. Yeah. So, so there was also a pivot point there as far as strategy, wasn't there? Well, there was, and, and Schnellenberger. I mean, his roots were with were with Bear Bryant. He had played for him at Kentucky and coached for him at Alabama. He recruited Joe Namath to Alabama, but he then diverted into the, for the professional game for a number of years, uh, and he was with famous, most famously, Don Shula, and he discovered the pro game and saw the vast amount of speed available in South Florida and knew, you know, if he could get the right arm to deliver the ball to those guys, it could really be, they could really be dangerous. And that's what happened. So I'm wondering from your memories of that game and gosh, I don't now I don't remember. Were you in the business at all at that point or were you still in college? Yes. I, no, I was uh, I was a fact checker at Sports Illustrated. OK. Um, yeah. So I was certainly keenly aware of the game. Gotcha. So, you know, I wonder if you had the same. I remember linking back to my time like that was, you know, an enormous upset. I was absolutely, you know, waiting for Nebraska to just plow through Miami. But I'm wondering oh, yeah. what your perspective was as far as the monumental upset. Was it a monumental upset? But also, did we see that as at the time as, oh, boy, this is going to – like Miami is here to stay? No, 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 no. <laughs> it was, well, first of all, it was a monumental upset. That Nebraska team, Ralph, just plowed through its schedule. I mean, nobody really challenged them. Uh and any thought that you had that this was the start of something great at Miami ended the next summer because Schnellenberger left. You know, and, and you know they, they get this guy from Oklahoma State. You know, who, he couldn't even he couldn't even win the Big Eight. You know, how was Jimmy Johnson going to uh, you know come to Florida when he was a, a native of Texas? And had coached his whole life in the Big Eight, pretty much his entire, almost his entire career in the Big Eight. Uh, how is he going to come to Miami and and recruit? And you know, that was uh, some brilliant analysis by, <laughs> by everyone. You know, the, you know, I mean, because Jimmy seized on the notion of speed, and and he changed that team around. He's the one that made it a perennial power. He came in and and his first year was problematic because he was hired in June and he kept all of Schnellenberger's staff and there was a lot of friction. You know, once that first season was over, they went eight and five. Uh, He got his guys in and and completely installed his philosophy and, and they never looked back. 
But it was something of a Jimmy Johnson was still something of a visionary, and while Howard yeah. Schnellenberger really uh, launched things, it was Johnson who said, "No, no, no! This there's something here that's not just a one-off." Absolutely, you know, Jimmy famously the, the, had the quote, uh, "You know, if, if you give me a choice between." A 260-pound lineman, or and I'm paraphrasing now that I've said it was a famous quote, so, you know, <laughs> go figure. But it, 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 if you have a 260-pound lineman or a 215-pound lineman who can run, give me the guy who can run. And, uh, you know, under him, safeties became linebackers and linebackers became linemen on defense, and it made all the difference. And... You know, to watch the mismatches that that Miami played for throughout that era, both with Jimmy and under Dennis Erickson, the mismatches specifically in the Orange Bowl against Oklahoma or Nebraska every year, it, you could really see the effect of the of that vision that Jimmy had, and it wasn't until Tom Osborne adapted that vision in the early, uh, adopted that version in the early nineties that Nebraska became the, you know, one of the greatest dynasties ever. Yeah. That's also the interesting part is right. Cause then cause that, that game launches, it was an amazing game and, and really a game that, you know, you could, I'm sure a Nebraska fan will sit down and go, boy, we really had our chances. Nebraska certainly didn't, didn't play poorly in that game. They put up a lot of yards and made some mistakes and it was a game obviously a one-point game that that was there for them to win but then you're right after Johnson takes over those games between Nebraska and Miami and Miami and Oklahoma became a lot less competitive the longer and longer they started playing so it did uh, it it did seem like and this was the point when you did start covering college football nationally it did seem like it took a while for the old guard to say no 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 we got to run the ball and we got to be big and strong right yeah, no, they they just it, I don't know whether it was just a stubbornness or you know this is my system this is what I do best but eventually Osborne figured out they just had to get faster and you could see the transition happen Ralph if you remember those early 90 games I mean we all thought that the 93 Orange Bowl with Florida State and Nebraska that we would see the same Nebraska that we had seen the last few years come in there and melt uh, against the the speed of the team from Florida and and you know if you remember Florida State mm-hmm. it came down to the very last play before Florida State eked out a victory over Nebraska and and Trev Alberts was in the middle of the field you know much faster than they had been in the middle of the field before for a guy that size. And, and all through that defensive lineup. And uh, Osborne got the message, and he, when he did, you know, the, the next four seasons, they were unstoppable. Right, yeah. I almost think of it the bookend to um, Miami 31, Nebraska 30 in the Orange Bowl in 84 being the Nebraska beats Miami to win the first of its back-to-back championships, and I think that's 94-95 season. Um, yes, Right. So, I, but really, I think you're right. I think it, the game that, in some ways, is almost in some ways the the similar game is that Miami Florida State game because it was that same feeling of 
oh, Florida State is a juggernaut. Now, I know they had lost and it was controversial that they were number one in Notre Dame, blah, 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 blah. But nonetheless, that Florida State team was pretty awesome. And I do think that, right, a lot of us thought that, well, they're just going to tear up Nebraska. And the fact that it was close, now Nebraska still came out on the short end, the fact that it was close was sort of shocking. And I don't know if we, until in retrospect, I think we realized, oh, this is what's going on. In other words, it took another year yeah. for us to realize, no, 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 Nebraska is changing. It wasn't yeah. that, oh, it was just a glitchy night and Florida State had a tough time. Nebraska was changing. They were, and uh, the one thing to note there is uh, that next season when Nebraska did break through and beat Miami, it was a combination of – utilizing that speed and maintaining the strength and and endurance that Nebraska had become known for under the strength coach Boyd Epley that allowed or not allowed, uh, uh, propelled Nebraska to beat Miami. Miami led that game going into the fourth quarter and, and Nebraska was in better shape. They physically wore down Miami in the fourth quarter with two long touchdown drives and, and won the game 24 to 17. And, um, you know, his ability to blend speed into what he was already doing, you know, he didn't abandon what he was doing. He just became faster. And, that made all the difference. And then the pinnacle of the Nebraska, that Nebraska dynasty came the next year against another Florida team, the university, which was right. I mean, that was, uh, and again, as someone who as a kid and that by then I was in my mid twenties, but not covering college football. So still had sort of a rooting interest. And Nebraska was always sort of the school I kind of rooted for. Yeah. That was just, that was just mind blowing. The idea that you know that what yes. what Nebraska did to did to Florida and Spurrier that day, where essentially, you know, they exploited the fact that Spurrier didn't leave a lot of guys into block, right? And SEC schools weren't fast enough to exploit it and and powerful enough to exploit it, but Nebraska was with this monumental beatdown in the Fiesta Bowl. Oh yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I saw recently where you know Danny Warfel was sort of chuckling and said, we actually thought we had a chance to win that game, you know, <laughs> and it became readily apparent that they didn't, you know, and, and on the other side of the ball, you know, the, that touchdown run by Tommy Frazier, right. I, to me is one of the iconic plays of, uh, of, of the era, if not the generation. I mean, he just plowed down the sideline, breaking one tackle after the other 75 yards. And it was, just a incredible show of of what Nebraska could do. And, and the last thing I'll I'll get you on on this, and then I want to change the subject a little bit, is going back to Miami thirty one, Nebraska thirty. The game was on, inspiring this podcast. It was on just a few days ago, being replayed because there's nothing but replaying sports. And I'm not a big replay guy. I'm not a, a guy who's been doing a lot of watching the old games. But this one drew me in. It was 12.30 at night. It started, so I was up until 3 in the morning. <laughs> you know, I, I just it, it amazes me, my recall of so many plays in this game. You know, obviously there's the two-point conversion. But if there's anything else in this game, 
that I don't know if you watched that replay. I'm guessing you probably weren't silly enough to stay up until three in the morning to watch it. But there's anything that sort of stood out to you as you sort of like you know flipped through your your mind here, your mental rolodex of a play or a moment that was particularly notable. Well, it's more what you said a couple of minutes ago. Is that Nebraska did not play poorly, and I remember, you know, Miami got out to a lead, and Nebraska came back. Uh, is, is, is my memory right there? Yeah, yeah no, it's right. Two seventeen point yeah. leads, seventeen nothing, yeah, and exactly. then thirty one seventeen. Yeah, so uh, that's that's what strikes me about that game is that uh, whatever Nebraska did, they had the the uh, drive and the self belief that a champion has that we're not going to lose this game and. They did everything they could. You know, I, I don't think that's a game. Sure, you make mistakes on on plays, but it's not like they came out. And, you know, they could leave that field and say we didn't give our best effort. And if you do that and you lose, then you just have to throw your hands up. You know, and and wish that your coach had kicked the extra point <laughs> so you could get a national championship ring. <laughs> You know, the other thing that was interesting about that time, Ivan, is, and again, this is, you know, especially for me being drawn in as a kid, you didn't see these games on TV all the time, right? I think, I, you know, if you look back yeah. on the Wikipedia, Nebraska appeared on national TV, I think, three, not including the bowl game, three, maybe four times. So, so much of the consumption of that team was through just seeing those 86 to 21, 75 to 10 scores come in. And they played a couple yeah. of close games that year, that, that many. And I, it also, it sort of harkens back to the time when there was a, you know, sort of this mythical, magical aura around these teams in some ways because you didn't see them all the time. They were just these big scores on the highlight reels or, or even given at halftime because remember the scores weren't running on the bottom of the screen, right? You have to, nope. you would get an update once or twice a half and then maybe see a little uh, uh, one one clip of Mike Rogier at halftime if you were lucky. Yeah. So I think there, there was something about that that made that team seem so gargantuan quite literally and and figuratively you know considering it's nebraska and there was all these huge guys because they were doing this thing in in without you know seeing them every week and there's no way to do that now i think nowadays no matter how great a team is i think because we see them all the time to a certain degree it allows us to sort of nitpick right and and try to oh well they didn't play as good defensively this week and oh i saw them and and they (laughs) sort of had a bad start so i don't know if their competition is good we weren't in that time teams like this could be have a magical feel to them and i think part of it is because we didn't see them all the time Oh sure, no, yeah, the, the air of mystery, absolutely. I mean, and and to that point, 1983, I believe, was the last year of limited television appearances. You know, the Supreme Court case mm-hmm. was decided in '84 that that uh, gave the television rights of the individual schools back to the schools, took them from the NCAA, which had usurped them and had controlled television rights. So the schools then, you know, and, and that changed the game utterly and completely. So 83 was that last season. And, and you made me think of as a kid, you know, after listening to whatever, you know, to growing up in Alabama, listening to an Alabama football game, that station would have a college football scoreboard show 
And that's how you got scores. You know, you, you, you know, it was an AM news talk station and they would read the scores off the wire. <laughs> so, and that's, that's how you found out so that you didn't have to wait until Sunday morning. And, and to tie a bow on the history lesson. So the idea that teams were limited in the amount of television appearances, you know, worked to Nebraska's favor because they were a great team. They got yeah. on TV a little more than other teams. And it explains why Nebraska had, wow, Nebraska's two great superstar players are from New Jersey, Mike Rogier and, and Irving Fryer. Well, you could see them on TV at least a few times uh, Nebraska could. So that was another advantage for Nebraska that sort of went away and it became distributed to m- many different schools. So that sort of wraps up the history yeah. lesson for today with Professor Mizell. So let's well, the only other point oh, I would sure. make about that is that it w- I think the limited television, one of, there were two reasons that there were so many dominant uh, powerhouses in the 70s and early 80s. And one was, the, you know, scholarships. The, the bigger schools could give out, you know, everybody could give out more scholarships so the bigger schools could hog more players. And the other was they were the only ones that were on television. You know, Michigan, Ohio State, Oklahoma, Nebraska, Alabama, USC, Notre Dame. That's who that's who you got every week. Mm-hmm. So that that's where the power lay in the sport. Right. And now we have scholarship limits. Everybody's on television, and still the same five teams win every year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I may have to rethink that theory. Yeah. All right, Professor. So one more thing, I wanted to touch base with you a little bit on what's going on now. And also you wrote another great story about sort of tying the present to the history of college football. We are looking at the great unknown, quite frankly. Mm. You know, the idea that, yeah. you know, I get asked this question if I'm on a radio show. So do you think the season's going to start? I have no idea, man. I'm not an epidemiologist. My wife, my wife is one and she doesn't know. So <laughs> I'm certainly not going to. You have inside info. Yeah, I wish. I wish. Other than it definitely helps as far as as the twist and turns of a story to have somebody in your house explain it to you, um, but it, it hasn't helped that much. The point being that we are heading for, again, the great unknown of this of this next coming season with the possibility of playing games maybe in the winter and spring. Uh, I, I, that's a very viable possibility, and you wrote about it today on ESPN.com that that is not totally unique in college football history. You have to go back a while but there has been a, a grainy footage tradition of playing some games in the winter and spring. It is. And, and it, you know, when, when we first began hearing talk about this uh, possibility, I, this bell went off in my head, which, and it was ringing because of the, you know, 53,000 times I've reached for my ESPN college football encyclopedia since it was published about, you know, whatever that was, 15, 20 years ago. You know, if you go, and it has the year-by-year scores for every school. And I remembered that some schools played uh, games at the beginning of the year. And that was just, I said, oh, well, this happened before. So I grabbed the encyclopedia and made a list of every school and when they played. And it, what was surprising is that it was a lot of the schools that, you know, we just got through talking about as, as the oligarchs, you know, that, that began that their first games were played in the beginning of the year, usually because that's when they could get a game. They were learning the sport or just starting it. And, the, you know, there was no really set season per se. 
uh, games quickly migrated to the fall because that's when, uh, presumably, because that's when the academic year began begins. But uh, at the outset, you know, the first Iron Bowl was played on Washington's birthday. The, the first, you know, Michigan and Notre Dame played games in early in the year. Uh, it wasn't their first one. It was their second and third one, though. And uh, Duke which was then Trinity College. Duke, Duke, North Carolina, and Wake played a round robin in March, one year in the early 1890s. So, uh, and there are just some, as I you know, went through books and made some calls to some people who are really historians instead of me, <laughs> uh, some fun anecdotes came out of it. And so I just put them together and said, hey, we've been here before. We have been here before, so I want to. I want to do want to ask you this. Um, well, actually, let, let's do two things here. There is so much, so much unknown right now, and the potential for a ton of upheaval to college sports, to society in general, of course. But college sports, uh, in particular, is the thing that we're most most interested in here on this podcast. So. Because you have done so much research over the last couple of years on the history of college football, when you talk about alarm, like those bells going off on your head, when you talk about the uh, you know games being played later, is there anything else that maybe has been going off when you hear talk about, well, this could reshape college sports in general? You might have schools dropping sports. You may have schools deciding, you know what, I don't want to be a Division One school anymore. It may lead to... You know, we're already having some changes in name, image, and likeness and how they're comp- compensating players, but maybe this leads to more changes as far as that area is concerned. A possible antitrust exemption for college sports that maybe could control salaries and spending. Is there anything in sort of in all your research that you, you think this time has the chance to be like another time where there was great upheaval? The one thing I keep thinking about, Ralph, is is during World War II, and uh, some schools played, some didn't play. Some played, but played an abbreviated schedule. Mm-hmm. Some played a regional schedule. Well, everybody played a regional schedule back then, but uh, you know, travel was limited, and it, it was really up to each individual school to figure out how best they could deal with both the shortage of male students and just the shortage of resources. Uh, so uh, to me that I think, I think the 2020 season, whenever it gets played, will have more of a, uh, will call back to that time. I don't think everybody's going to be able to play. I don't think everybody's going to be able to play at the same time. And that speaks more to the, not only the regional importance of football, you know, the differences in the regional importance of the game, but also where the virus is going to be hot and, and, and when, and, and and as you pointed out, nobody can answer that question. So I I think there's going to be an ad hoc quality to this season that will be kind of like world war two. Ivan, thank you so much for doing this. Ivan Mazel is the uh, great ESPN writer. He has been doing this for a while. He is a great source of knowledge, both past and present. Thanks for helping me out to uh, put my favorite game into a little uh, historical context.
Ralph, the beauty of these podcasts is that we we do we talk about what we would be talking about if we were sitting in a bar somewhere. So uh, you know, it's, a, it's the exact same thing. Uh, only I didn't get to buy you a beer, uh, but I'm holding you to that, and I hope you were drinking a beer while you were doing this. Well, uh, Topo Chico, that's the best I could do. <laughs> Fair enough, Ivan. Hopefully, we'll see each other soon, um, preferably Absolutely. in a press box. Thanks a lot. You bet. And now three and out, first down. A couple of weeks ago, it seemed like every blue-chip prospect in the country was announcing a commitment to Ohio State. The Buckeyes' 2021 class sits atop the rankings right now and will be very tough to catch. Over the last couple of weeks, it's Tennessee that's been on a roll. Jeremy Pruitt's 2021 class sits right behind Ohio State currently after landing a five-star linebacker in the last week. Cynics will say Butch Jones had some flashy recruiting classes at Tennessee, too, and see how that worked out. Fair point. If you ask the experts, they'll say Pruitt is doing even better than Butch, uh, though it is close. Tennessee is absolutely a program that is in prove-it mode. I'm sure even a portion of their fans are guarded in their optimism about how the Vols ended last season and how they're doing on the trail this spring. It's been more than 10 years since the Volunteers have had a 10-win season. It will be tough for them to get there this year with games against Alabama, Oklahoma, Florida, and Georgia. But personally, this does feel a little different than the Butch Jones era. We'll find out if Jeremy Pruitt really is different. But this does feel like, for the first time in a while, Tennessee has a path back to consistent contention in the SEC East. Second down, the one-time transfer exception is coming to big-time college sports, but it looks like it's going to take a little while longer to get there. There was talk about a tweak to the waiver process to mirror the one-time exception, which allows athletes in other sports to transfer once as an undergrad without sitting out a season, as is required now. Instead of changing the waiver, the NCAA will look to make more comprehensive reform of the transfer rules in January through the legislative process. I haven't been a staunch proponent of allowing players to play immediately after transferring. I I see the logic in creating a little bit of a penalty there just to manage rosters and keep players from bouncing around. But the fact of the matter is, it's really not the right thing to do. The rule has never made much sense. There's inconsistencies all around, starting with the fact that other athletes are allowed to do it. So why aren't football players, basketball players, and even, by the way, baseball and hockey players allowed to do it? Coaches will complain because that's what they do when they lose power. The most important side issue that needs to be adjusted, I think, is the yearly scholarship cap. There needs to be more flexibility for schools to add transfers after losing players to transfer. That, in turn, will provide more opportunities for players looking to move. Third down, I just wanted to clean a couple of things up from my conversations with Jim, Lee, and Ivan about the 1984 Orange Bowl. It was a long time ago, and it's easy to forget some details. So, Number three, Auburn beat Michigan in the Sugar Bowl that game, 9-7, to seven, not lost. The Wolverines were good but had come into the game 8-3, and three, and the sluggish victory wasn't enough for Auburn to impress poll voters compared to what Miami had done to Nebraska. And uh, it was unranked UCLA, not USC, that blew out 
number four Illinois in the Rose Bowl earlier in the day. Irving Fryer's infamous drop touchdown pass was a memorable play in that game, but it also came a few plays before Jeff Smith scored to make it 31-30. And while speaking with Ivan, I mentioned Nebraska erased two 17-point deficits. No, that's not right. They erased a 17-0 deficit and then a 14-point deficit when they were down 31-17. That's the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, Warren Levinson, for making me sound good. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Westwood One Podcast. Please subscribe so you do not miss an episode. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening and come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. This podcast is presented by Regions Bank. You're chasing your goals, and it's up to you how you want to get there. Let Regions Bank coach you with financial tips that fit your everyday grind. Visit regions.com slash next hyphen step to learn more. Regions, member FDIC.